the man of screen. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 93 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode I'm going to continue my run through season one of Super Friends. And that means we're covering this week the episodes Too Hot to Handle, which involves a heat wave, and The Androids, which uh, involves a, a mad scientist uh, replacing people with... Uh, robots to uh, convince people to uh, focus more on Earth than in space. So we're going to have two more Super Friends episodes in which uh, our quote-unquote villains have good causes in mind, but the way they choose to go about bringing awareness to those problems is villainous. But before I get to this week's episode, I have some feedback to address. Two items this week. The first is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on, I want to say, Man of Screen episode number 83. So Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Sadly, these were not terribly strong segments for the end of Season 2 of the Filmation cartoons, but they were workmanlike, which is all you've really come to expect from this series. I thought Luthor's Loco Looking Glass was written, at least in the choice of having a mirror as a device to transport Jimmy Olsen, just to get an, an alliterative title. Other than Beanie in this episode, who still calls a mirror a looking glass? You asked in your coverage of The Warlock's Revenge if anyone knew of any appearances of The Warlock in the comics. I don't know of any, and as far as I can tell, he only appears in the Filmation cartoons, so I guess he was an original character for this series. I think it's unfortunate that we never got to see more of the Warlock's sister, and Dave writes in parentheses, wondering if her name is The Witch. To answer another of your questions, from your discussion of the Halia of the Himalayas, I can't find any mythological creature called the Halia, but it is a girl's name in Arabic, meaning Moon's Halo. With Luthor's lethal fireworks, we get another appearance of one of Superman's main foes, but in a fairly pedestrian story. I thought for sure that, with Jimmy trapped in a lead box, that lead would end up saving Superman from the kryptonite. But that didn't happen, so I guess the writer wasn't completely phoning it in. With all the contact Jimmy Olsen has had over the years with lead, it's a wonder he could still tie his shoes, let alone hold a job. As usual, the Superboy segments were my favorites. I do wish that the caveman from the Neanderthal Caveman Keeper could have had a, little, a better fate than spending his life as a study subject for scientists. It would have been fun to see him return later as, say, highly educated gentleman working as a scientist himself and being a friend of Superman's. The Terrible Trio was a good anti-bullying story, and it's always fun to see a story along the lines of people finding a genie's lamp or making a deal with the devil and learning to be careful what you wish for, as the genie, or devil, or in this case, Superboy, grants their wishes, but not quite in the way they expected. I am looking forward to your next episode with the Justice League segments. I always enjoy Superman working with his Justice League colleagues. Live long and prosper, Dave. And I must say, if Dave really enjoys seeing Superman with his Justice League colleagues, uh, I wonder how much he's enjoying my coverage so far of these episodes. As I record this, it is still February, so none of the Super Friends episodes have dropped yet, and they're not going to drop 
in my time for another two weeks or so. But for you, the last one would have dropped almost a month ago. So kind of a little bit of a timey-wimey thing as I'm starting to try to record some of these episodes early. So I'm not burning myself out trying to hit a weekly schedule. You know, and I don't have a ton to say about Dave's letter. You know, Dave is right that the Filmation cartoons are very workmanlike. And honestly, some of these Filmation episodes are... uh, I've watched them so long ago that I really don't remember much of much about them. As I sit here right now, I couldn't tell you a thing about Luthor's local looking glass, which is kind of a stark contrast to the Adventures of Superman episodes. I mean, after having watched 104 of those, you know, and I might forget a detail here and there, but if you threw an episode title at me, I could probably at least give you the bare bones about what that happened in that episode. And Dave also confirmed what I believed about the Warlock, who did not appear in the comics. And Dave echoes my comment that, you know, the witch was just, the witch, quote-unquote, Warlock's sister, was just a plot device to get him at. really had no bearing on the story. And yes, the Superboy segments were my favorite. And the, t- the terrible trio, you know, very good anti-bullying story. You know, as a parent with one kid in schools, the other one is still far too young to go to school. You know, you hear a lot about anti-bullying. So, I mean, that episode was made about 50 years ago, and it, it's still addressing something that's timely today. So that's cool that at least that episode is ageless enough to tackle an issue that's Still a problem half a century later, unfortunately. So, as usual, I would like to uh, thank Dave for his feedback. And I've got another email here from uh, Jack Bohm, and his subject is Warlock Remembered. And Jack writes, Yes, I am the one who tra- was trying to place the memory of Clark's joke at the end of Warlock's Revenge. As you covered more and more of the episodes, I began to wonder if it was a real memory at all. Finally, here it is. So now I can stop listening. Just kidding. Your summaries and commentaries are entertaining even when... As you say, there's not a lot of meat on the bone here. Speaking of which, I had thought the podcast would bring back memories of other episodes, but that hasn't happened yet. Your descriptions and the audio clips bring no inkling at all. Still, I know I saw this episode, although when, I can't say. I would only have been three and two-thirds on October 22nd, 1967, so it was probably a later rerun slash repackaging. Thanks, Jack Ball. So I'd like to uh, thank Jack for his uh, email in. Uh, What Jack is referring to is that I was referring to a previous email he had sent in which... A letter writer, I didn't remember who at the time, had mentioned that he remembered the gag at the end of the Return of the Warlock episode where Lois threw a lighter at Clark or something for that matter. And I kind of remembered that email when I got to that particular ending. And as for Jack's uh, not really having any inkling of these ep- of these episodes, any memories of them, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to kind of chalk that up to the fact that a lot of these episodes just aren't very memorable. You know, I've watched... Most of these episodes in the latter half of, in the latter section of last year, pretty much from the last half of the year, from summer on through December, and to be brutally honest, I don't remember half of them. And I didn't even remember what, what exactly happened in Luthor's local looking glass. Maybe if Dave had a related, uh, related, maybe if Dave had said something specific about the episode, I would have remembered it, but you know, these episodes aren't, aren't staying with me like the Adventures of Superman episodes are. Even the ones that I, I've only seen a handful of times. So, that is what it is. Right now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. Then when I come back, I'm going to cover Too Hot to Handle. Hang around, folks. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. 
Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017 from the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. All right, welcome back, folks. The first episode I'm going to cover is Too Hot to Handle. Original broadcast date was October 20th, 1973, and our guest characters, played by most of our regular cast, included John Stevenson as Colonel Wilcox, Casey Kasem as Von Noalot, I guess we know what his uh, part of the story is going to be, Ted Knight as Colbar, and John Stevenson also plays Lupus, Dolphin Number 1 and Dolphin Number 2. Ted Knight also plays Mr. Singh and Bird, and Olan Soul is the farmer, man, Solitarium Man and Solitarium Woman. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Wendy and Marvin spot Ivy growing wildly over a museum in Gotham City. Across the world, heat is increasing, causing drought in the dairy lands and melting glaciers. Great Scott! Holy confusion! It's unbelievable! If those crumbling glaciers aren't stopped, whole continents will be swamped. Great Hera! What is it, Wonder Woman? That's Dairyland. Dairyland? It looks like a desert! Dairyland used to be the lushest, greenest farmland in America. The heat wave has dried up all the water. Those people will need help. Water for the animals. I'll handle this one. Batman, where's everybody going? This terrible heat wave is causing problems all over the world. You better believe it. Even the air conditioner in the Justice League Hall of Fame broke down. Why has it suddenly become so hot? I don't know, Wendy. Something strange is going on. Something very strange and unnatural. Colonel Wilcox summons the super friends to an observatory where... I'd like you to meet Professor Von Noelot. Professor, these are the members of the Justice League of America. I am pleased to meet all of you. Excuse me one moment. Ah, gentlemen, Miss Wonder Woman, we have to work fast. As you probably know, the Earth has been experiencing a strange and catastrophic heat wave. The world's top scientists, like Professor Noelot, have been working around the clock to discover the cause of this mysterious atmospheric condition. Colonel Wilcox, you said we were facing something worse than just a terrible heat wave. Yes, Superman. Our Earth is being moved out of its orbit. Howling hurricanes, Colonel Wilcox. I'm afraid the force being exerted on our planet is a billion times more powerful than a hurricane. And we don't have a clue as to its cause. Not yet. In that case, Colonel Wilcox, I would assume that temperatures will keep rising at an alarming rate. Unless we find a way to stop the drift of the Earth. Exactly. How do we do that? We don't know yet. But we better find out fast. Because time is running out. Superman goes to India to bring in the Flash for help. 
told me to do. The professor has suggested we create a magnetic field around the Earth with a force equal to that coming from the sun. It would counteract the sun's pull. That's correct. Thus, like two magnets situated with facing identical polarities, they will be repelled from each other. The Earth will return to its original orbit. So, Flash, with you carrying a coil of copper wire and speeding around the Earth, I'll generate the magnetic force we need. I'm ready. Meanwhile, Wendy and Marvin had spotted a bundled figure in SDI photostats of emergencies caused by the heat. Then they spot the figure at the observatory. But after telling the heroes, the figure has vanished. The heroes learn something behind the sun is again moving the Earth, and Superman goes and destroys a robot satellite. Meanwhile, Wendy and Marvin have stowed away in a vehicle used by the figure after giving Wonder Dog a message. Jumping Jupiter! We're on an island! Look, Marvin! A volcano! I hope it's not too active. It must be! Why do you say that? Well, it's probably the only place that strange man can keep warm. In a hot, active volcano! Come on! There must be some kind of cave behind these rocks. See if you can move them! Won't budge! Let's look for another way. Batman and Aquaman find the volcanic island where the figure and youngsters are from analyzing the message's paper. At the island, the figure reveals it is an alien. I'm a failure. A complete and utter failure. Why did you want to move the Earth closer to the sun anyway, Mr. Kobar? My planet, Solitarium, is freezing up. It's so cold that we have decided to move. We were hoping to come to Earth to live. You see, we need a constant temperature of 140 degrees to live comfortably. But Earthlings can't live in a 140 degree temperature. We'd roast. We meant you no harm, but we had no choice. And now I guess there's no hope for us. My last report was that Solitarium has dropped to a bone-chilling 85 degrees. Why is your planet getting so cold? When our industry was just getting into full swing about the way your planet is today, our wisest men warned us against exhausting our resources and ruining our planet. But the people laughed at them. There was more than enough land and water. We thought we'd never have to worry. Then black clouds of smoke began to build up around our world. They blocked the rays of our sun from getting through. Our planet began to cool off. But still we did not worry. Our resources were still plentiful. The more fuel we burned to heat our cities, the darker it became and the colder it got. Finally, it has reached a point where all the fuel on our planet cannot keep us warm. Coal? Oil? Natural gas? Wood? We've used all our resources. And soon, because we've waited too long to mend our ways, we shall all freeze up like your popsicles. Flash, Superman, and Aquaman restore the alien planet's environment to give them a second chance. Things sure are clear up here when you don't have to see them through a haze. It is beautiful! But the only way it will stay beautiful is if each of us feels it's partly his job. When you think about it, humans, you, me, everybody, were the only creatures able to upset the balance of nature. And the only ones able to maintain it. Like Colbar and his people discovered. You can't just move out. I guess we'd better take good care of our planet. Marvin, you said it. It's the only home we have.
Okay, the most notable thing about this episode right off the bat, that this is the first appearance of The Flash in Super Friends. He had previously appeared in the three uh, Justice League filmation cartoons. In this episode, he is played by Ted Knight, as I mentioned up above. However, subsequent appearances of The Flash after this will have him voiced by Jack Angel, who will also provide the voice of Hawkman and Samurai. And this is an episode, another episode about an alien planet that has squandered its natural resources. This is not the first time we've run into this theme during the course of the first seven episodes of Super Friends. And again, the Colbar, who's on Earth from Solar Terrarium, he is going to try to make Earth more like his planet, more habitable for his people, which only has the minor side effect of destroying humanity. These guys don't think. They just see a planet and they're going to take it. I mean, yes, the show tried to stay away from villains the Super Friends had to punch, but, you know, heating the Earth so that humanity can't live on it is just about as villainous as you can really get, even if you think it's for a good cause. So, into this episode, uh, the first thing we see at the Gotham City Museum is being attacked by a giant plant. And uh, when Cindy and Marvin call the Super Friends, Superman says Batman and Robin are in the area. Yes, of course they're in the area. They live in Gotham City. And I'm beginning to wonder, you know, this show doesn't go out of the way or make any attempt whatsoever to talk about the geography of the world. Where is the the Hall of the Justice League? Is it in Gotham City? Is it in Metropolis? Is it none of those places? But Wendy and Marvin seem to hit the, just, hit the uh, Hall of the Justice League pretty uh, frequently, so maybe it's in Gotham? I don't know. Do they live in Gotham as well, because they're at the Gotham City Museum? Or are they on a field trip? You know, I don't know. You know, this episode, as it goes to fades to black, I'm watching a version without commercials, so I don't know if there was a commercial break here, but <clears throat> if there was, it would have been a good one. As the episode poses a question but from the narrator, you know, asking if Batman and Robin can save the museum. You know, that's a good way to uh, you know keep kids interested through the commercials. And they'll want to come back and find out if uh, Batman and Robin can exactly save the giant ivy that's covering the museum. And honestly, this sequence made me think of uh, Ghostbusters 2 from either 1989 or 1990, whenever that movie was released, you know, when the museum was covered by slime. In this case, the museum was covered by giant ivy. So, what do Batman and Robin do to solve this problem? Why, they turn the vines into a giant ball. You know, then I guess they just kind of kick it away, but that IV is no longer a problem. So, there's a heat wave, and as if the early imagery of the hot sun and Wendy and Marvin wiping their brows didn't tell us that it was hot before, the narration does so and points out the oddity of a man dressed in a parka and earmuffs. So, now there is apparently a Justice League museum exhibit. It's not at the Hall of the Justice League, but somewhere else. Marvin is boasting about what kind of superhero he'll be, but Wendy just gives him a lecture about staying in school, uh, or he'll become super stupid. You know, this is obviously, you know, teaching kids to stay in school, and which is a good message, but while I wouldn't encourage anybody to drop out of school, doing so doesn't necessarily make you stupid. Apparently, it's uh, so hot that it's wilt- melting wax figures, including a new one, which is dressed as The Flash, which is going to provide us with a little bit of foreshadowing this episode, because The Flash is going to appear later on in the episode. So back at the uh, Hall of the Justice League, uh, Stuff is coming in on the trouble alert, and it's nice to see that all the superheroes get to exclaim at the ticker tape before telling us what the hell's going on. So, apparently this heat wave is doing some uh, massive damage. It is drying, drying up a farm and melting a glacier, so at first I think we're having a global warming episode. And we are, but not about man-made global warming. We're having an episode about aliens warming the Earth so we can no longer live on it, making it so they can. 
So right off the bat, I'm wondering how long this heat wave has been going on to do all this damage. All of this damage uh, wouldn't be done overnight. And how first appearance of Aquaman in this episode shows him surfing on a dolphin, which, you know what, people give Aquaman a lot of flack, but I really think this image of him surfing on a dolphin is pretty cool. Definitely better than the uh, coming out on the Stingray a few episodes ago. So the seas are rising, causing some great floods, and uh, we get some nice shots of Aquaman here enlisting the sea life uh, to create a levy of whales to hold back the flood. Of course, uh, my first uh, question is what happens if uh, one of the whales decides to move? They can't sit there guarding against the flood indefinitely. Eventually, these guys have to get back in the water. So these this whale, this levy of whales, you know, what you see on the screen are a whole bunch of whales just sitting one on top of the other, you know, on the surface. So eventually, they got to get back in the water. Otherwise, they're going to suffocate. I wonder if the writer of the show thought of that. Batman points out that this heat wave is unnatural, giving us our first clue that something is wrong. So thank you, Batman, for pointing out the obvious. So here comes Wonder Woman. I'm not sure what she can do about the desert, but she can use her strength to open a valve with her strength. However, all the water inside the tank has evaporated, so I guess both Wonder Woman and Dairyland are out of luck. Well, wait a minute. Wonder Woman can summon the transparent plane, or as it's better known as, the invisible jet, by telepathy. I didn't know Wonder Woman had any telepathic powers, but... I guess uh, here she does. If she had any in the comments of the time, please let me know. Man the screen at gmail.com if there are any Wonder Woman experts out there to be had. So now the North Pole glaciers are melting and Superman is going to take this one as the falling ice is threatening an Eskimo village. I believe now you're supposed to call them the Inuit, if that's the proper way to pronounce it. But as this episode was created in 1973, calling them Eskimos was still okay, I guess. So Wonder Woman shows up and Superman uh, punches some ice glaciers and he's basically going to send some ice to the Dairyland. And I can't imagine that this is going to solve all of Dairyland's problems, but I guess it'll just give them some water for now. You know, good for Dairyland. I mean, basically what happens is Wonder Woman takes the ice, you know, before it melts back to Dairyland and kind of drops it off there into a hole. You know, it gives the cows something to drink, so they're not going to die of thirst. But a part of me was almost waiting for the greenery to magically come back through the uh, presence of water, but thankfully it does not. So... Those of you who may be watching along or just know Wonder Woman that well, she tends to say Great Hera as her uh, explicative. No, she is not invoking the name of the pilot and or bus driver on Star Wars Rebels. She's talking about an ancient uh, Greek goddess, and she thanks Athena for bringing the water, You know, which points right back to her ancient Greek and Amazonian heritage, which apparently goes further back in her history than I originally thought. So uh, right now, uh, our junior super friends are in the museum when the fire sprinkler goes off, and... Uh, Wendy didn't seem to believe it was raining inside, despite the fact that she must have clearly felt the water. I don't know. The junior super friends are something that uh, I could really do without in these episodes. Some of you may have had a crush on Wendy at the time, but I don't know. If you take these three characters out of these episodes, and I understand that they're put in there to kind of be the kid's perspective, you can make these episodes 22 minutes shorter. So Marvin tries to use some go-go gadget legs to turn off the water at the ceiling, but he doesn't quite have the reach that he needs. And again, Wendy shows him up by using her brain and some brute strength as she turns off the water at the valve. Marvin is truly an idiot. So now we're going to get a call from Colonel Wilcox, who wants to see the Super Friends due to a catastrophe. There's always a catastrophe. I don't think Colonel Wilcox ever calls the Super Friend just to, you know, shoot the bull and uh, find out how, uh, how things are going. Nope. It's a catastrophe. He's calling him because, well... The government can't do anything on its own, and this is not a show about the U.S. government doing things. It's about the Super Friends. So, he calls them. Apparently, the Earth is being moved out of orbit, and 
you know, right off the bat, if you're thinking along with the episode, it is, you'll realize it's drifting toward the sun, which would account for the hotter temperatures. So, as this is going on, Wendy and Marvin are going to provide us with their five minutes of usefulness. When they spot the guy who was all bundled up despite the massive weather, you know, and they found pictures of him at all the weather calamities. So this scientist here, Dr. Von Noalod, hell of a name for a scientist, isn't it? Von Noalod, because he knows a lot. He gives a quick solar system lesson for the kids who don't know a lot about the solar system, the sun and the nine planets. At least I believe it was nine at that time that revolve around the sun. I'm not sure if Pluto was a planet this week. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. You see, here is a model of our solar system. The sun, the planet Mercury, Venus. Third from the sun is our own Earth. And then, of course, Mars and the rest of the planets. As you know, all the planets revolve around the sun, staying in their precise orbits because of a delicate balance. A balance between the sun's gravitational pull of the planets and the centrifugal force trying to pull the planets away as they speed around the sun. If this delicate balance between the Earth and the sun was upset, we might fly away from our own solar system. Or fall closer to the sun, Professor? Aha, precisely, Superman. The Earth is getting warmer because it is actually getting closer to the sun. Holy cosmic crisis! Superman, can I see you a second? In just a moment, Wendy, the professor is explaining something very important. Now, let me show you something. This is where the Earth was 24 hours ago, and this is where it is right now. How is that possible, Professor Von Noelot? We don't know. But somehow we've got to find out. Soon. Yes. By tomorrow at this time, the Earth's temperature will be nearly 115 degrees. And what about the day after tomorrow? If the Earth keeps moving closer to the sun at this rate... Holy smokes! We'd better think of something, and fast. That's why I asked you here. Aren't there any clues to the cause, Professor Von Noelot? Nothing so far, Wendy. But we've been setting up some experiments. I'll show you our computer room. Von Noelot's uh, speech here shows that I was right. That the Earth is getting closer to the sun, which is... Something that doomed Krypton in previous incarnations. For those of you who remember my coverage of the Kirk Allen movie serials and the George Reeves Adventures of Superman, Krypton was destroyed by the fact that it was being drawn toward its sun and getting unbearably hot. So when he comes up to Superman with some important information, but in very un-Superman fashion, he blows them off. Now, one of my complaints, other than how dumb the junior super friends are, is the way they're treated by the rest of the League, as in very poorly. Even Robin, who is of their own age, he's a teenager himself, treats them as poorly as the adults do. And I guess it's because Robin gets to uh, hang around with uh, Batman all the time that he feels a little uh, superior to the junior super friends. So we're going to get some more charades as Wonder Dog tells uh, them about the photo, about the man from the photos in the observatory. So Wendy and Marvin spot the bundled up man in the observatory. Wendy wants to get the super friends, but Marvin doesn't want to lose time. But meanwhile, one of the suspected problems that's causing the Earth to be drawn towards the sun is the problem of magnetism. And the sun is kind of a giant magnet, so that tracks. And when Wilcox mentions rising temperatures, you should see how fast that thermometer went up. It went up very quickly, 80, 90, 100, 120, just shot up as uh, Wilcox was talking about the temperatures. So they need to reverse the magnetism of the Earth, and when speed is mentioned, the League is ready to go after the Flash to bring him in. Next, here is Kolbar. He is involved in what happened to the Earth. 
He told his commander not to worry about him. So it is nice to see that someone is finally paying attention to Wendy and Marvin. But when Wonder Woman asks for the photos, our teens can't seem to produce them. So apparently a coal bar got them while Wendy and Marvin weren't looking or something. Now, in India, which is where the Flash is, for some reason he's not in Central City, this episode will make you believe that the Taj Mahal will bounce and then crumble. And Flash, the fastest man alive, fixes it up. While that token Indian kind of stands there and smiles. And then Superman shows up and he says he needs help. So Superman recruits the Flash and Colbar is making good, really good time. Because now he's in India all bundled up. So here's what Flash has to do. He has to create a magnetic field that will pull the Earth away from the sun. And really all he needs to do is run really fast with some copper wire to generate the magnet. So Flash wraps some wire around himself as Superman calls him Speedy. Which for those of you who follow the comics and the Arrow TV show on the CW. That is what Green Arrow calls his sidekick. In the show, it's his sister Thea. In the comics, it was at one point Roy Harper. So, so far, the plan to save the Earth is working as it's being moved away from the sun and the temperatures are dropping. Apparently, Colbar on Earth has a lab in the Pacific, and now we know his plan, which is to increase the temperature of the Earth. I'm not sure why that's a surprise at this point in the episode when everything talks about how hot it's getting. But the reason he's wearing a long coat is because it's, apparently his species can't handle what we humans would consider temperate. Even, you know, in 80 degrees, he needs to wear a heavy winter coat to protect him from the cold. So, the Flash succeeds in his mission and then shows up and apologizes for taking so long. I guess it felt like forever to him. Lupus is the person that Colbar is reporting to on what we're going to find out later is Solar Terrarium. And he's getting desperate and he asks Colbar to turn on something even more powerful. The uh, Solar Robot. And it's clearly a risk because Colbar doesn't really want to do it. He thinks that's a bridge too far. So now Wendy and Marvin will see Colbar again, and Marvin again makes a messenger of Wonder Dog, putting a note in his mouth. So they stow away in, in an old fire truck, which turns into a spaceship, and they go with Colbar to his headquarters. So Wonder Dog was running to the Justice League, but wouldn't you know it, he loses the note when he encounters a fire hydrant, leading to a slapstick sequence, which I really could have done without, where you know the note washes down the street and gets picked up by, by a bird and then dropped into a dump truck. Then he finds it, then he loses it in the pile again, just... On and on again. And while this is happening, while Wonder Dog is failing in spectacular fashion, he's seeing visions of Marvin taunting him as Wonder Dog is haunted by Marvin's confidence. So our stowaways, Wendy and Marvin, arrive on the island and surmise that the man who, they don't know his name is Colbar yet, but that he, they surmise that he can only survive where it's really hot. Being that he's in the center of an active volcano also helped give that away. So now the Earth is moving toward the sun because of an unknown power from the far side of the sun. So, you know, good job, Flash, you know, solving that problem at first, but now we've got a new one. So Superman is now going to check it out because he's the only one who can handle the heat of the sun, which is very Silver Age, as Superman at that time could survive such things. You know, starting with the uh, post-crisis era and the John Boone reboot, Superman could no longer survive the corona of a star, and to be honest, you really don't see that tested in the comics much anymore. So back on the island, Marvin surmises that the rocket ship may have a garage door opener, because why wouldn't it? So at this point, we're going to get a clue that Colbar's race did something to their home planet that makes it uninhabitable for them. And Lupus says that they've learned their lesson, and they'll be more careful this time. So this is the point where we start to wonder what these people did to their home planet, and why they need. And that's giving us a clue as to why they need Earth. Apparently something's wrong with their planet, they need another one to inhabit, they chose Earth, despite the billions of people on it. Now, the solar robot shoots at Superman, but he seems to kind of repel the energy until he grabs the robot and throws it into the sun, destroying it, and it's kind of Colbar's lab uh, explodes around him, so I guess that caused a bit of a short-circuit feedback back to the lab, which destroyed a bunch of stuff. 
And the Marvin eventually gets the cave open. And I'm getting amused by how much Wendy tears down Marvin because of how much trouble he tends to get them into. So beyond that, Kolbar is going to face some dire consequences if he fails in his mission. We never hear what those consequences are, but we know they're going to be dire because somebody said they were going to be. So after Superman returns from his mission, they realize that no one has seen Wendy and Marvin all day, and they find volcanic ash on Wonder Dog's note, and there is a motion coral which puts the island in the South Pacific. My notes really don't explain how they got to that point, and I'm not sure the show does either. But they do take a winding road to get to where they need to go. Aquaman knows of the island, and the Justice League is on its way. So here's Cole feeling sorry for himself because he failed to cook the earth and bake humanity, and because now he has nothing to show for all of his efforts and his people are going to freeze to death. So my question becomes, why couldn't they go to a warmer planet? Why couldn't they go to Mercury or something? That should be warm enough for them. First planet closest to the sun. I don't know, maybe there's enough atmosphere on Mercury. Who knows, maybe it's too hot. Well, there's always Venus, I guess. Learn to breathe whatever gas is in that atmosphere. So apparently this is where we learned that Kobar meant no harm, but he's willing to boil the human on Earth alive. How can he mean no harm if he's turning the Earth into a place where the indigenous species can't live? To me, that seems like he's causing great harm. So now we get a story about how Kobar's people destroyed their own world. Apparently, smoke from industry kept the life from reaching their world, causing the temperatures to drop to below their species tolerance level. And nobody goes outside anymore. With Dr. Pelagian fought against water pollution, this episode was teaching kids about air pollution. So the league shows up, and they're all smiling very widely as they come in, uh, considering the fact that Kolbar is trying to roast humanity. So in order to help Kolbar out and get him off Earth, the League is going to help clean up Kolbar's plant. <clears throat> Superman will clean the air, Aquaman the water, and Flash helps out Kolbar so he doesn't have to roast humanity alive. So Solar Terrarium is cleaned up and everyone is happy. For the ending, we get a morality play about how it's everyone's job to take care of the planet. If only people can listen to that now, because, as Wendy said, it's the only home we have. Unless, of course, there's a rocket ship that's planning to leave soon and nobody's telling me about it. It is a possibility. So, like I said before, another pollution episode. I can only imagine that there's an episode about land pollution somewhere down the line. Okay, episode a little preachy and lots of adventure. So, I'm going to take a quick break now, play a podcast promo, and then we're going to come back with The Androids. Hang around, folks. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU, JLU cast. cast. Whatever the future holds. We'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Alright, welcome back folks. We're going to move right on to The Androids. Original broadcast date was October 27th, 1973. No realistic guest cast for this episode. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com Your number one source for Superman information on the web. A moonshot from Cape Courageous Spaceport is sabotaged by Dr. Rebos, who has replaced the two astronauts with two androids and let the threat to continue if the government does not stop the space program. Holy bolts from the blue! Look what I found! A tape recorder! Every communication to and from the capsule is recorded on that machine. Play it, Robin. Maybe we'll get some answers. 
This is Dr. Rebos. You are all witness to my great powers. Now I warn you, all space exploration must stop or you will suffer the consequences. Dr. Rebos? I wonder if he knows about the upcoming top-secret Venus probe. Furthermore, your top-secret Venus probe will be next. Super friends, if you'll excuse me, I must contact the space installation immediately and put them on the alert. I'd feel a lot more secure if we were there. I couldn't agree with you more, Aquaman. The fact that Dr. Rebos has chosen to destroy our Venus probe is quite convenient. Holy misnomers! Why convenient? Because Clark Kent has just been given an assignment to do a television report on the Venus space probe. And while Clark Kent gets that story, Superman will guard that operation? Exactly. Dr. Rebos and his assistant Loco then create an android wonder dog to successfully sabotage a mission to Venus, despite Clark Kent being at the base reporting for Galaxy Communications. Colonel Wilcox accuses Wonder Dog of being a double agent. You, sir, are a traitor. A traitor to your super friends and a traitor to your country. Colonel, those are very serious charges. Batman, single-handedly, that dog has sabotaged our Venus probe. <laughs> but Colonel Wilcox, Wonder Dog is the most loyal dog in the world. Loyal to whom? Us or the enemy? He couldn't have done it. I'll bet a year's allowance on it. Wonder Dog was seen at 0900 entering the top secret control room by countless workers. And right after that, the computers and panels went up in smoke. Holy airtight evidence, Batman. It does look bad for Wonder Dog. There must be another explanation, Colonel. There is no other possible explanation. Wonder Dog is a double agent. No, he couldn't be. How much dog food did it take to buy you off? <laughs> See? He admits to doing it for nothing. I'm sorry, Colonel Wilcox, but even in the face of your proof, we still believe that Wonder Dog is innocent. In time, I know we'll get to the bottom of this. Time? There is no time. We've just received a threatening call from Dr. Rebos, which we've taped. Let's hear it, Colonel. We will, just as soon as that double agent leaves the room. He knows too much as it is. <laughs> just a second, Wonder Dog. We're going with you. All right, super friends, listen to this. Super friends, you have disregarded my warning, and so I had to sabotage your Venus probe. Do you suppose he knows about the upcoming manned launch to Mars? Your upcoming manned launch to Mars is next. Holy countdowns. If that's sabotaged, our nearly completed space station on Mars will be in jeopardy. Unless you call a complete halt to your space program forever. Of all the dirty lowdown. This is not dirty and lowdown. My reasons are... Excuse me. Five cents for the next three minutes, please. Uh, I, I don't have any more change. Sorry. Then we will have to discontinue your call. Well, Super Friends, we certainly have our work cut out for us. Lucky he pinpointed his next target. We'd have learned a lot more if he'd made that call collect. Gentlemen and Wonder Woman, tomorrow the Mars missile engine will be tested. If anything happens to it, our space program will have been dealt a serious blow. Rest assured, Colonel, the Super Friends are at your service. This is a diagram of our space station on Mars. Here is the space lab which will house five astronauts when completed. And over here will be a launching pad designed for further probes deeper into the universe. If tomorrow's testing of the Mars missile engine is successful, we will be able to complete the space station within the year. Any questions? 
Holy remote control. Look, the tape machine has started all by itself. All right, operator. I got some change at the candy store. Thank you, sir. Please continue your call. No, where was I? Oh, yes. <laughs> you will never get to test your Mars missile engine. I, Dr. Rebos, promise you that. I don't believe then the scene, Nepa Aquaman helps guard a test of, of a Mars mission, but Dr. Rebos uses artificial kryptonite to kidnap and replace Superman. The android Superman sabotages another mission. Meanwhile, Wendy and Marvin have found and been captured by Dr. Rebos. Excuse the interruption, Master, but look what I found sneaking into the factory! Who are they? They are... Uh, I don't know who they are. Uh, who are you? I'm Wendy, and he's Marvin. <laughs> I thought it was you, Wonder Dog. Wow, super surprises. Look at all the doubles. There's Superman and Wonder Dog. And the two astronauts. But none of them look alive. <laughs> They're not. I made them. Allow me to formally introduce myself. I am the famous Dr. Rebos, the maker of people. But they aren't moving. Well, they're not really people. They're androids. Robots that look like people. <laughs> yes, and dogs. Since I made them, I am their master. My word is their command. But why have you commanded them to destroy our space program? Yeah, Dr. Rebos, what have you got against outer space? Nothing, nothing. But I feel that inner space needs our attention and our money more than outer space. I don't understand. It's simple, my young friend. The Earth's poor and sick are sorely in need of help. And what do we do? We spend billions of dollars to fly to the moon just to collect a, a few measly rocks and a bag full of moon dust. That's not true. Our exploration of the moon has been of great help to science and medicine. Not to mention the thousands of jobs created by our space program. It's a question of what's more important. And I think it's more important to spend the money first on Earth and then in space. But money is being spent on the sick and poor. There are all kinds of health and welfare programs. Not enough to suit me. By sabotaging the space program, I'll bring the people responsible to their senses. <laughs> Come, Loco. Help me prepare my Superman android for his next mission. Batman and Robin have rescued Superman, and Wendy and Marvin escape to tell the Super Friends that Dr. Rebos has sent the android Superman to destroy a space base on Mars. Superman goes to save the base, while the other heroes go and stop Dr. Rebos. The important thing to remember, Dr. Rebos, is that if you're dissatisfied with the way things are, there are lawful ways to bring about change. That's right. Through the courts or through the politicians we elect to office. And writing to newspapers. And how about broadcasting? Get them interested and they'll get the people to think about things. What a shame, Dr. Rebos. You're obviously a brilliant man. If only you had used your knowledge to build rather than to destroy. If I had another chance, I promise I would do things differently. And I'll pay for any damage I've caused. Don't you think he ought to get another chance? Yes, please. All right. Well, we'll put in a word with the proper authorities, but it will be up to them. Thank you, Batman. And Wendy, and Marvin, and Wonder Dog. All right, so this episode, again, our villain is somebody who wants to teach humanity a lesson. Solve your problems on Earth before you take to the stars and spread out. 
So we're going to start with a rocket being launched to the moon, and everyone is watching. I mean, this is uh, you know 1973, four years out from the uh, first moon landing, when something was shot off into space, whether it was a space shuttle or something else. You know, people sat and watched. It was must-see TV back then. You know, even toward the latter end of the U.S. space shuttle program, I always try to you know catch the video or watch um, the launches of the shuttles. You know, way back, uh, I want to say it was 2010, I was down in, uh, and Tom, my friend Tom lived in Florida, I was visiting, uh, we actually had an opportunity to go to see one of the uh, last shuttle launches, but we didn't go, we were, I believe, too hungover to want to make the drive over to uh, Cape Canaveral from where we were to check out the shuttle launch. So, uh, Robin points out that Batman has an impeccable memory as the rocket takes off, Wendy is cheering on the rocket ship as if it's a track star, then the TV went out. No one thought anything of it, but the narration tells us that the screens had also gone out at Mission Control, which we see as when the animation takes us to Mission Control, the screens are blank. And then the rocket crashes to Earth with a pretty big explosion. And somehow the astronauts survived. But I would guess on a show where that doesn't have real villains, they're not going to kill astronauts in a violent shuttle crash. So I have noticed in this episode that Colonel Wilcox is calling them the Super Friends and not the Justice League. I wonder if that's something the writers noticed uh, early on and decided to uh, make the change and use less of the term Justice League and more uh, Super Friends. So, it's been reported that the astronauts are missing, but you know we saw them walk off, so the viewers left to wonder what's going on here. So, at the crash site, Robin found a recorder and it provides a message from Dr. Rebos, who demanded the space program to stop, and he knows about the top-secret Venus probe that apparently Batman knows about it, too, uh... I'm not sure how top secret this thing is, if Dr. Rebos and Batman both know about it, but they do. And apparently everybody's going to know about it, because Clark Kent is doing a report on the Venus probe for Galaxy Communications. At this time, Clark was not working at the Daily Planet, but he was working for Galaxy Communications as a news anchor. Which can make it really hard if uh, somebody needs to contact Superman during the 6 o'clock news. You know, for a half hour or an hour or however long uh, Clark's segment is, he can't leave that desk. If anyone noticed that, oof. The Wendy uh, bungles Clark's secret identity by calling him Superman while he's in his Clark Kent clothes, which is nearly as egregious as Lois Lane calling Superman Clark in Justice League. Uh, it's neither here nor there. And Wonder Dog doesn't seem to have his top secret pass, so he is stuck outside. So this episode gave me my first opportunity to really listen to Danny Dark voice Clark Kent as opposed to Superman. I mean, most of the times these episodes, he's Superman for the duration. So I'm sitting here listening and... The voices are the same. He's not really putting as much of an effort to disguise his Clark Kent voice as, you know, people like Bud Collier and Kirk Allen did. He seems to be going more from the uh, George Reeves uh, school of portrayal. Not changing the voice or his hair, but he is definitely not Superman, I guess we'll say that. But this show does do a good job of showing Clark look around with his X-ray vision as he interviews people about the uh, space program. And now we've got two people in a car, and this older man must be Dr. Rebos. He looks like a cross between John Lithgow and Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And they disguise themselves as reporters from Bow Wow Magazine. Oh, and by the way, they disguise the car as well. Dr. Rebos hits a few buttons, and all of a sudden the van says Bow Wow Magazine on it. So, that's that. I'm pretty sure Dr. Rebos' assistant shares a voice with Marvin, and he's just as dumb as Marvin. You know, that's another trope of the time. Uh, scientists with their dumb as rocks uh, sidekicks. Now, sure enough... Uh, Loco blinds himself by taking a selfie and having the flash bulb go off in his face. You know, a little hard to take a selfie with a film camera because, one, it's very big, and two, you don't get to see it instantly, so you don't know how it came out. One thing I don't miss about that. So Dr. Rebos hides out at an auto shop with his name on it, 
Probably not a great hideout if your name is right on top of the place. And now there are android bodies hanging from the ceiling and two astronauts are sitting on a chest. And apparently the pictures that Dr. So apparently the pictures of Wonder Dog that Dr. Rebos had Loco take were so they could make a copy of Wonder Dog, which Loco thinks is a real dog when after the uh, imitation is completed. Ah, finished. The assembly is a complete success. You know, Dr. Rebos, I've seen that dog before. Of course you have. It's Wonder Dog. Wonder Dog? What's he doing here? It's not really Wonder Dog. He's Wonder Dog's double. We just made him. Now, let's put a little life into him. All right. Bark. Bark. Not you, dum-dum. Good. Now, beg. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. He's completely in my power. Like I said, just as dumb as Marvin. And Doc, but Dr. Rebos, he's thinking he has plans for his robotic Wonder Dog. And then we get a sequence that's really dumb. Wonder Dog went inside the gate. You know, okay, let me set this up for you. In order to get onto this base, Dr. Rebos is posing as a truck driver. As he just drives the truck onto the base, he gets clearance from the officer at the gate, who doesn't seem to ask for a top-secret pass for the bus tour. But he does ask it for a dog. Okay. Well, okay. Anyway. Basically, what Dr. Rebos does is he arranges something so that the clone of Wonder Dog has a top-secret pass. So, the dog leaves the truck on the base, goes outside the gate to show the pass to the soldier on duty. He was already in the gate. Why go out? So, what well, is clear here that the robot is framing Wonder Dog for wrecking this lab, and I love how the lab has a button that says, don't press. It actually has a don't press button. Why would you have a button if you couldn't press it? I mean, there's nothing around it that says emergency, but apparently when you hit this button, you kill everything. Nice thing to leave where people can find it. So, in the next scene, Wilcox is screaming at Wonder Dog and calling him a traitor and basically berating him, doing everything short of arresting the animal. And there were witnesses to seeing Wonder Dog there, and... Apparently, no one thinks to identify where Wonder Dog was at the time of the attack. They're just taking the uh, attack by Wonder Dog at face value. Not even Marvin, who apparently loves this dog, had any explanation for where his canine was at that time. So Batman is pretty defiant. He says they'll prove Wonder Dog's innocence. And with that happening, Wonder Dog has left the room. Good. Maybe this episode will not go somewhere with Wonder Dog out of the room. So now, Rebos is threatening Amara's mission. And only on this show... Would a threatening phone call be interrupted by a payphone needing more change? And eventually, uh, Dr. Rebos must have found some change somewhere because he actually does call back eventually and finishes making his threatening uh, phone call. Like I said, they're setting up a space station on Mars. Only four years after the uh, original moon landing. Way ahead of where we are now, all these years, almost a half a century later. So, the juniors are busy trying to prove Wonder Dog's innocence. Wendy says she was giving Wonder Dog medicine at 0900, which, for those of you who are not up on military time, that's 9 a.m., why she couldn't say that to Colonel Wilcox, I'll never know. And as he's the person, the one person on this show who actually listens to her. But if she said that she was giving Wonder Dog medicine at the time of the attack, he might have believed her. I don't know. He may not have dismissed her out of hand like most of the Super Friends do. So meanwhile, the Super Friends are set up to guard the, the space station. And so something has Wonder Dog worked up. Apparently, he sees his reflection in a mirror and he mistakes it for his double. And, chase, and he chases the car with Dr. Rebos and Loco on it. So now Loco is reading something from the inside of the hood of a car, and the juniors are listening to it. And apparently they run into Wonder Dog, and I'm guessing this is the robot version, and he leads them right off into a distraction. Basically, the double led them out of the yard. Not bad on the dog's part. 
So now I hear Dr. Rebos talking to what I presume is a few androids on the submarine. And Dr. Rebos' plan is to go back to the guard base where the super friends are guarding. And he takes the pictures of Superman, presumably to duplicate him. Now, back at the Hall of Justice, the super friends are going over what has happened. Colonel Wilcox has had with the super friends and nothing has happened. Wonder Woman brings in some prisoners who were trying to sabotage the Mars, Mars missile engine. Aquaman calls them guests, but I guess he didn't notice that they were tied up. Usually when you bring somebody into a room tied up, that goes a long way to indicating that they are your prisoners. But these uh, two prisoners are talking very robotically, and only Batman figures it out. That there's some kind of android. So meanwhile, the juniors are still trying to clear one dog of any wrongdoing, while Rebos creates an android of Superman. And at first, I wondered if it can do the things that he can do, but there is a... Between the Superman on Mars, so I guess... Every double of Superman has not been eliminated yet. So Rebos interrupts a call to the super friends from Colonel Wilcox, and he is threatening them, and he tells them to leave outer space alone or suffer the consequences. So after this threatening phone call, <laughs> we go back to Colonel Wilcox on the phone, and he keeps talking as if nothing happened. I wonder if he actually knows that anything happened. Now, of course, what kind of super friends would they be if they caved to the threat? They do not leave well enough alone, and I'm still wondering about that Superman android that we saw previously, but... And right now, Rebos is posing as a food vendor. This doesn't hold up. Dr. Rebos brings the food truck up to Batman and offers to sell him soup. And he does. But there's no reason why Batman shouldn't recognize Dr. Rebos since he probably just saw him on that view screen at the most an hour or so ago. So, no, I'm not buying that Batman doesn't recognize Rebos in this situation after he just saw him on the, on the view screen. Maybe it's the cook's hat that he's wearing. I don't know. Batman at this time is relatively uneven. So Batman orders a chicken soup and he lets Rebos through. And apparently Superman is going to be fooled as well by all this. And he is knocked out with kryptonite after Re- Rebos pulls out a catering table. <sighs> the things these people are letting their villains take advantage of. So now Superman Android is going to sabotage the Mars mission. And Superman walks in, pulls some levers, and destroys the machines. And after this happens, the super friends are flummoxed. And this is the robotic Superman and he's talking like that. So it only goes to show that Dr. Rebos is still holding Superman who was overcome by the kryptonite. And the eagle-eyed viewer will catch a quick continuity error, to, error here. After the android Superman walks away from the table, while the super friends are discussing what to do, Superman briefly appears at the, t- at the table before disappearing again. You know, just a you know fun thing to watch for as you're watching this episode. Once, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it, so if you don't want to see it, don't look for it. So Batman's clue is chicken soup, and so they have to find the caterer, and that will lead them to Superman. I have noticed that with Superman having done the uh, sabotage at the uh, rock at the base, uh, there's no angry call from Colonel Wilcox here. So they're going to have a hard time finding the truck because it's basically a disguise for something else. So the juniors find their way back to the junkyard and encounter Loco and have a mind-numbing conversation with him that ends up with them coming to see Dr. Rebos. So here's Dr. Rebos' motivation. Human beings need to solve their problems on Earth before going into space. You know, like I said, I can't say I disagree with him as there are many problems on Earth that need to be fixed. And he believes that sabotaging the space program is going to bring about the change that he wants. Well, like many other villains in the quote-unquote villains in this series, he's doing the wrong thing for the right reason. The juniors are trying to fix things, but the super friends crash the party, and this leads to a fight between them and the robots. Meanwhile, the Superman android is on Mars, and Superman follows, and there is a brief fight between the two, which Superman ends quickly. So that does answer my previous question that the Superman android was able to do some of the things Superman was able to do. So after the fight ends, the Super Friends lecture Dr. Rebos on the lawful ways to bring about change. Such as writing to your congressman, letters to the editor of newspapers, I guess nowadays posting things online on Twitter or 
or Facebook or whatever way you can get the word out. But threatening people is not a way to go about it. And if you look closely at Robin here, you'll see he's wearing his. So, Wendy wants to give Dr. Rebos another chance, but Batman reminds her that that's up to the proper authorities. So, we get another morality play. Basically, the lesson these episodes of teaching kids is, don't break the law to try to change the world. So, with that being said, an okay, another couple okay episodes. You know, they, tr- they got a message they're trying to get across. They may have gotten that message across. They may not have. I don't know. Not necessarily for me to judge. But I am going to say next time I'll cover the Balloon People and Fantastic Furps, F-R-E-R-P-S. If you want to send me some feedback, some email, feedback is always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Manascreen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo. And all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. <laughs>